You are listening to messages from Cuyahoga Valley Church in Broadview Heights, Ohio. If you're looking for more resources or want to get in touch, please head to our website at www.cvconline.org. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to your day and help you experience new life in Christ. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Cuyahoga Valley Church, all of you online guests. We're so glad that you guys are with us as well. It's good to be together again. Uh, Last weekend, my wife and I celebrated an anniversary, and every time you celebrate your wedding anniversaries, it takes you back to that first moment, right? And so there's part of us that it feels like 28 years that we've been married because of, you know, moving and the age of our kids and thinking through the experiences we've been through and we've shared. And there's another part where it feels like it was just yesterday that we were in front of all our family and friends and in front of our pastor and before God, and we exchanged, you know, marriage vows. And in that moment, we actually made a covenant. And a covenant is, is kind of an older word that we really need to kind of refresh and appreciate the understanding of what a covenant is because God relates to us, as we'll talk about today, in a covenantal way. Now, a covenant is basically a binding commitment that two people or two parties make with one another. It's different than a contract. A contract can be technical, formal, kind of cold, right? But a uh, covenant is a promise that's made more out of a relational um, uh, essence. It's more personal as both parties are committing to work together for a common good or for a common goal. And covenants can be made between two equal parties. Uh, Also, covenants can be made between a party who has higher authority and higher power and someone in a lesser position, such as a king and a subject. And so the party with more power usually will vow protection and provision and the party in lesser power will uh, pledge uh, loyalty. And in a moment, what we're going to look at in the Bible is this moment where a woman makes a covenant with her mother-in-law. We see Ruth make this covenant commitment to her mother-in-law. I don't think very many of you have done that with your mother-in-law, but but Ruth did it with hers, all right? And uh, we are continuing week two of our series, Restoration Road, where we're looking at the book of Ruth and unpacking this glorious story of restoration and how God can use all situations, all people to work out his plan of restoring people back to himself. So I invite you to open up your Bibles, your Bible apps to the book of Ruth. We're going to be there in a minute in chapter one. But for the sake of those of you who weren't here last week or maybe are just coming online, just a quick refresh of where we were last week when we started the series. What we see when we open up the book of Ruth is in chapter one, there's a man named Elimelech, and he lives in Israel in the city of Bethlehem. And his wife's name is Naomi, and he has two sons. Now, at this time in Bethlehem, there was a famine. And so Elimelech had a fork in the road. He had to make a choice. Now, Israel tends to be the land of promise in the Hebrew scriptures. And so does he remain in the land of promise, wait it out, see what God has, and and kind of ride the roller coaster through the famine? Or does he go a different direction? And does he decide to look for sustenance and provision somewhere else? And what he does is he ends up leaving Bethlehem. And he travels 50 miles east around the Dead Sea to an area in Moab. Now, Moab and Israel uh, have bad blood, if you will. Uh, There are tensions. There have been uh, issues in the past 
that have caused a rift between the Moabites and the Israelites. And on top of that, uh, in Moab, they are spiritually idolatrous and adulterous. They are worshiping pagan gods. Uh, the, the key god that they worship is a god they call Chemosh, who is considered the god of destruction. And the Moabites historically have tried to seduce the Israelites to worship uh, their gods and have been really uh, kind of uh, had adversity and, and enmity with Israel. So this is where Elimelech goes. Now, while there, Elimelech dies, and his two sons take on Moabite wives. They marry two Moabite women, and then the sons actually die. We don't know when, we don't know where or how or why, but we just know that now you have three widows in the ancient Middle East, which is not really a widow-friendly environment. It's just hard to not have providers and protectors in that context. So now Naomi, the wife of Elimelech, has a fork in the road. Does she continue to stay in Moab, right? Her daughters-in-law are from there. She's established. She's been there 10 years. Does she just keep, keep going on in Moab, or does she make a U-turn and go back to Bethlehem? And so she decides to go back to Bethlehem. And that's where we pick up uh, today, is basically uh, Naomi has put Bethlehem in her GPS, and her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, are ready to go along for the ride. And that leads us to verse 8, just a little overlap from last week. Let's pick it up, Ruth chapter 1, starting with verse 8. It says, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead, referencing her sons that had passed away, their husbands, and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Let's pause there. This is a very emotional moment. These women have been through a lot together. And we see that Orpah and Ruth have this, you know, sense of loyalty and relationship that have connected them to Naomi, who's really technically like their guardian right now because there's no husband for any of them. And so they're going to go where she goes. That's, that's a sense of loyalty. But what's happening is Naomi is kind of doing the math and forecasting what life will look like for her and for Orpah and Ruth if they do come back to Bethlehem with her. And listen to her rationale as you go through that text. She says, look, I'm old. I don't, I don't have a husband uh, in sight right now. So what are you going to do? Wait for me to get married and then hope I have a couple more sons? Like, is that really realistic for you? And then, of course, she's also touching on a practice, a cultural practice at the time, that when uh, a man and a woman married, if the man were to die, then one of his brothers a lot of times would marry the wife to continue the family name. So she's saying, are you going to wait for me to find a husband, which isn't likely, and then have a couple sons and wait, you know, almost 20 years for them to grow up before you're ready to marry again? Like, come on, you you, you ladies are in your prime, you're young. And plus, she's probably doing the math that if she brings Moabite women back to Bethlehem because of the cultural tensions, they're probably not going to be like prime pickings for, you know, a good good Jewish man, right? 
And so she's not thinking this is a good setup. And so out of care and compassion for them, she's saying, look, you're off the hook. You don't need to come with me. You're going to flourish if you stay here. Go back to your parents' house. Stay with your culture. Stay with your people. You're off the hook. I know we're good. And Orpah, big hug, big kiss, says, okay, I'm staying in Moab. But Ruth has got a different mindset, and that's where we continue on here uh, in the passage. Actually, before we do, I want to point out something that is kind of a theological checkpoint that I think is important about where Naomi's at. One, Naomi is saying some good things about God. Uh, she says to them, may the Lord deal with you kindly. If you're a good Bible student, uh, you'd like to write in your Bible, you can circle or underline that word kindly. Because the original word in the Hebrew is the word hesed. Can everyone say hesed? Oh, your Hebrew sounds great this morning. That's good, okay. We don't have a word in our English language that directly defines or best summarizes hesed. So when we say words like love, compassion, grace, mercy, faithfulness, they all relate to this Hebrew word hesed, but they don't fully define it or summarize it. Hesed is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's actually a fierce love and loyalty directed at another party that generates mercy and compassion even when the other party doesn't deserve it. And so what what Naomi is doing here is she's saying, may the Lord, and she's using the word Yahweh there, which is the, the name that God has revealed himself to in the scriptures in the Old Testament. She's saying, may you experience Yahweh giving you hesed. May he give you his love and his kindness and, and, and may it never run out for you. So she's, she's blessing them. So the good news is she's identifying God's character right there. The other side is though, she's basically saying God's hand is against me. She's looking at all that she's lost. She's looking at the circumstances that she's in. She's in a land far from home. Her husband's died. Her sons have died. She now has these two Moabite daughters-in-law, and she's just saying, I've had a rough road. I think God actually is putting his hand against me. All is not well for her. So she's interpreting her hardship as God basically hating on her. And that's where she kind of takes a little bit of a theological deviation. You can't blame her. It's been a rough road, and we do the same thing, right? It's amazing. We can have a hundred amazing days of blessing and never utter God's name once. We have one cruddy day or week or month. That's all. It's God's fault. God doesn't like me. God doesn't love me. And then in a more serious tone, like when sickness, injury, hardship come flooding into our life, we start to go, God, why are you against me? But when you study God and you study his character, you study his nature, you realize God's not against you. He's for you. He loves us. He's good. He's kind. And if we trust him, we will watch him work out both the good and the bad, weave them together for his glory, for the accomplishment of his purposes, and actually ultimately for good in our lives. It's just a hard road that we have to discipline our minds and our eyes and our hearts to see. And so it would be good to remember that we live, and Naomi needed to remember this, we live in a fallen and broken world. This world's been corrupted by sin. So violence and sickness and death and injury and hardship flood in. It's a temporary part of the human experience because one day God is going to come back and restore the world back to perfection again. And those who are in Christ are going to just have their mind blown for eternity as we experience perfection and presence with God forever. God's not against us. He's for us. But that's not the way Naomi's interpreting her circumstances. 
And so in this emotional moment, Orpah takes the offer, she stays, but Ruth is wanting to do something different. What does she do? Look at Ruth 1.15. And she said, Naomi to Ruth, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Let's pause. Even after Naomi repeatedly tried to uh, urge Ruth to stay in Moab, Ruth's not having it. And she makes a covenant. She makes a covenant. She makes this commitment saying, I'm going to go with you to the end, long game, till I die and I'm buried. I'm going to be with you. This is the covenant commitment that Ruth is making to Naomi. Now, it's already a beautiful expression, one of the most beautiful expressions in Scripture. But when you really tease out all that Ruth is signing up for and all the layers of meaning, it makes uh, an understanding that what she's saying here is even more beautiful and more courageous. For example, if she goes with Naomi back to Bethlehem as a widow from Moab, she could be signing up for perpetual widowhood, never to be married again if no one would take her. And that also means perpetual childlessness, never to have a child, and to live as a foreigner in a foreign culture. But she's willing and ready to do that. By her saying, and as you listen to what she's saying, every phrase is more fully committing her. I'll go where you go. I'll stay where you stay. I'll, I'll die where you die. I, I want to be with your people, your God. And so she's identifying herself now with Naomi and her land and her people and her God. In fact, when you look at this phrase specifically, your people should be my people and your God, my God, in verse 16, we believe that that is a moment of conversion for Ruth, that that is actually a confession of faith for her. What a beautiful picture that here this woman who grew up as a Moabite, probably worshiping the god Chemosh, among many other pagan gods, is now pledging her loyalty to a woman of the one true God and to become a follower of the one true God. Your God will be my God. And so she's abandoning the false worship. She's abandoning idolatry and, and spiritual adultery and coming on board with following the one true God. And it's easy to think that maybe something about the way Naomi related to her maybe something Naomi said or something Naomi did would, would point her to God. Now, now everything's coming online. Or maybe her, her husband who had passed away. She's not going to be totally unfamiliar with the Jewish faith because she would have spent time with these Jewish people. And then she seals this vow. She seals this covenant by calling upon the specific and unique name of God to hold her accountable. She says, may Yahweh, when she says, may the Lord, she says, may Yahweh do so to me and more, if anything, but death parts me from you. And now she's inviting the judgment of God if she's unfaithful to keep this oath. And by using his name, she is now saying that he is her God. And so this is a moment of conversion. It's so beautiful. And what I want us to focus on for a little bit today is, is see this covenant moment with Naomi and Ruth, and then to zoom out for a bit. 
Because I think what we need to see and what I think God wants us to see is when we consider the whole of Scripture, all of God's plan, and what he wants us to see in this moment, we see Ruth's covenant with Naomi as a reminder of God's covenant with his people. In Ruth, we see a living picture of covenant. As Ruth, a young Moabite woman, through her relationship with Naomi, comes to know the covenant love of the one true God and belong to his people. And so for today, I really want to sink that concept of covenant deeper into our minds because God is a God of covenant. It's his covenantal love that he has chosen to relate to us with. God is a God of covenant. His relationship with people is connected to his said. So we come back to that has said, that unfailing, unlimited, fierce love and kindness and mercy and grace that God gives. His has said leads him to make covenant agreement with humanity so that they can experience him and be in relationship with him and live according to ways that will be good for them and pleasing to God. Also, his has said makes him make covenants, but when you're in a covenant, it's because of God's hesed. And so this is all tied together. God's steadfast love for us is seen in his divine covenants. A lot of the other covenants we're looking at, like the covenant between Ruth and Naomi, was a human covenant, one human to another. But now we're talking about God who makes divine covenants with his people, even when we're undeserving, uninterested, and unfaithful. Now here's a couple ways that God's divine covenants are different than human covenants. God initiates the covenant. Um, we don't ever initiate the covenant. Those moments we say, like, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. God's going like, mm, you're not setting the terms here, okay? That, that's us trying to initiate the covenant with God. God always initiates covenant with humanity, and he does it without negotiation, and he sets the terms. He offers the covenant relationship with terms already in place. Then here's the kicker. He commits himself to fulfill his part of the covenant, his promises, whether we are faithful or not, whether his people are faithful or not. So when God says, I'm going to do this if you do that, when we don't do that, God still does this. That's how, that's how fierce God is towards his covenant love toward us. And what's amazing is as he commits that kind of covenant love toward us, as we see it in the Bible, even decisions we make that would seem to take us off path or would thwart God's covenant he still utilizes those to fulfill his purpose and plans. We'll see that as we continue through the book of Ruth. Remember last week I said, in order to really get all that you need to get out of the series, you've got to go six out of six. This is a six-week series. And each week isn't going to have its own tidy little ending. But as we keep marching through the book of Ruth, you see this magnificent narrative unfold. And what I just said about how God will use even our missteps to accomplish his plans will be seen in a massive way when we get to the end of Ruth. And so the book of Ruth was written with the biblical covenants in mind. We cannot grasp the power or the beauty of God's restorative nature of restoring people back to himself unless we understand how God works through covenant. Let me give you some examples from Scripture. Um, and by the way, even just talk about Scripture, the Bibles you hold, right? Some of you know this probably is, uh, quite a few of you do not know this. The Bible you hold is divided into two sections. It says Old Testament and New Testament. The word testament is just another word for, any guesses? Covenants. You've got the Old Covenant 
And then you got the new covenant. And so here's how we see God making covenants with his people in the old covenant. God said to Noah, I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then he gives the rainbow as a sign that he's going to fulfill that covenant. We see this in Genesis 9. And ever since then, we've never had a flood engulf the earth and kill everybody. And every time we see a rainbow, the true meaning of the rainbow is that God keeps his promises, that God keeps his covenant. That's what God gave to Noah in covenant and to the people of Noah's time. And then God said to Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation, he says, I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And then he gives circumcision as a sign of that covenant. You see that in Genesis 15 and 17. And then God said to Moses, Behold, I make a covenant. Uh, Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been done on all the earth. And then he says, I'm going to give you all the law inscribed on tablets as a sign of the covenant that I will keep my end. You see this in Exodus 34. And then God said to David, King David, second king of Israel, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And a forever throne was the sign of God's covenant uh, through David. You see this in 2 Samuel 7, which by the way, we will see an amazing twist at the end of Ruth that helps fulfill that very covenant. Then God said something fascinating through the prophet Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 31, God promises that he's going to give a new covenant. And part of the reason is because Israel is so good at breaking their end of all the covenants. And God knew that. Again, he's working out his narrative. He's working out his plan. And so he says, I'm going to give you a new covenant. Look what he says in Jeremiah 31. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, that I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So our covenantal God informs us that he will continue to carry out his plan covenant by covenant by covenant, and there'll be a new covenant that he will one day initiate. And then we fast forward 600 years to the life of Jesus. When you look at Jesus Christ, here we have God in the flesh, God the Son. We've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, we've got God the Son. And as he came in miraculous birth, perfect life, uh, making known God's will, God's kingdom, calling people to repentance and belief in him, as he's sitting down on the night that he's going to be betrayed and arrested with his disciples, knowing that he's going to be crucified hours from this moment, he gathers them together. We're familiar with this moment and we're followers of Christ and has what we call the Last Supper. And in that Last Supper, you can find this in Luke 22, 19 and 20, it says this, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the what? New covenant. It's the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant that God spoke of in the Old Testament, the old covenant, back in Jeremiah 31, Jesus is kicking off. And he's going to do so with his death on the cross and the shedding 
of his blood. That's what's going to establish this new covenant between God and humanity. And I want to back up for a second and go back to the moment. This is so cool about how God connects the dots here. And you see God advancing his narrative through the Bible. You go all the way back to Genesis when God is making a covenant with Abraham. And he calls Abraham to do, which was a common practice at that time, uh, to seal a covenant. He calls him to get seven animals. And except for the two birds, he takes the other animals and he cuts them in half. I know this is gruesome and this is gross, but God's very clear that the blood needs to cover sins. He cuts these animals in half and he separates them, making a little aisle. And the practice at the time is that the parties that were making a covenant would walk through the animals that were severed. And part of what they were saying is, if I ever break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I'm unfaithful. And so what happens is here Abraham inaugurates, you know, he's he's obeying God, he severs these animals, but now instead of Abraham, the, the, the weaker vessel going through to make the covenant, God himself walks through. And at first you're going, well, what's the big deal? But see, here's the thing. The one with the most authority, the one with the most power says, no, I'm going to walk through. And what I'm saying is, if this covenant is broken, may this happen to me. But check this out. This is where we see the gospel, the good news. What God is also saying in that moment is, if you are unfaithful, if you break covenant, may I be tore apart because you broke covenant. Some of you are going, ah. And we look at Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus is on the cross, being torn apart, nailed to the cross, it is the sacrifice that is being offered to God because we broke covenant. We broke from God. We're unfaithful. And so Jesus is initiating this new covenant in his blood because his blood is sufficient. And the blood that he shed on the cross is sufficient to forgive sins. We don't need to receive Christ and trust in his blood and then try to add to it through religious activity. His blood is sufficient. It's only his blood that we can enter into relationship and forgiveness with God in this new covenant. And so we keep coming back to this gospel understanding. And so Jesus is our entrance into the new covenant so that we can experience the hesed, that that limitless, eternal love, mercy, compassion, grace that God has for us. And the book of Ruth is ultimately, when you look at the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth is ultimately about the covenant faithfulness of the Lord to guarantee the arrival of a redeemer and restorer who ends up being Christ many years later. And Ruth's covenant to Naomi is actually bringing Ruth into the covenant people of God in relationship with the covenant God who he's going to use, we'll see in the weeks to come, for his purposes. So we understand this concept of covenant at a deeper level. So when you think Ruth, you got to think covenant and how God covenants. Well, let's wrap up chapter one of Ruth and see what happens because we see that Ruth says, I'm going where you're going to go. I'm making this covenant relationship with you. What happens next? Ruth 119. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? 
So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And here we see in this moment, as Naomi returns after a decade, we don't know how long they were in Moab, we know it was at least 10 years. After over 10 years of being in Moab, she shows up, and she's got Ruth with her, this Moabite widow, and those who recognize her are like, wait, is that Naomi? We haven't seen you for over 10 years. And she says, like Ruth's standing right next to her, right? She says, don't call me Naomi. By the way, Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because God's made me bitter. His hand's against me. I left full. I came back empty. And you can almost hear Ruth going like, uh, standing right here. I left, you know, blessed. I came back cursed, empty-handed. And Ruth's like, still right here. And that's the way it works. When, when we become embittered and we're dedicated to only see hardship and we're dedicated to only see loss, we miss seeing all that God has given us. We could probably write a page a day in a journal if we pay attention to all the good things God does every day. Every day of our life. But we fixate on what we feel God's holding back from us or what God's prevented us from having or what he's taken away. And this is the mindset that Naomi's in. Again, you can't blame her. It's been a rough road. But, but this is this place where she's, she's missing what God is doing. But God's going to use it anyways. And as we continue through Ruth, we'll see that how God turns that around for Naomi and, and lets her experience his hesed and his goodness and his loving kindness to her and for Ruth. But in this moment, this is, this is a hard sell for her because she doesn't see it. In fact, even the nuances we pick up in Scripture are so important about God and his faithfulness that, that Naomi's not seen. Why did they leave Bethlehem in the first place? There was a famine, right? Bethlehem means house of bread. There was no bread in the house of bread. There was a famine. When you read the end of chapter 1, it says that they returned at the return of the what? Barley harvest. What has God done? He's been faithful. He's returned back to the land. He's, there is now bread in the house of bread because God is faithful to keep his promises, even though the road might be rocky. So what do we do with this today? God is offering all of us his hesed, his unfailing, eternal, limitless love and kindness. He invites you into covenant with him, provided by the blood of Christ. What are your options? The first, you can reject it. You can say, thanks, but no thanks. I don't believe it. I don't want to believe it. I have a different set of beliefs. It's too good to be true. Whatever you know, comes to your mind, you might be led to reject it. And I just want to be really clear in a, in a very loving way. God, as you read Scripture, makes it very clear that if you reject His offer of loving kindness, if you reject Christ, the outcome is an eternity apart from God in a place of punishment called hell. God speaks very clearly about this. And so you don't want to reject this offer. You might need to process it. You might need to pray about it. But I encourage you to pick it up and talk to someone you know who knows Christ to find out more. Keep coming back. Keep listening. Keep reflecting. But don't reject it. And we all have family and friends who are in the place of rejecting. And we've got to keep praying for them. So you might reject it. The others, you might miss it. Like Orpah stayed in Moab. Yeah, she kind of missed an opportunity, right, to go back to the covenant people of God. Naomi was kind of missing out on seeing some of the goodness of God in that moment because she was too preoccupied with her pain. And so another option is God's been so good to you, but you're so preoccupied with your pain or you're just too comfortable where you're at that you're just missing it. 
And if you're an unbeliever, if you don't know Christ, that missing it can lead to a rejecting of it, which is dangerous. But if you follow Christ, missing it means that you just don't get to enjoy seeing the faithfulness of God in your life as often as it's there. You're being prevented from the joy and the peace and the comfort and the strength that comes with experiencing God's covenant faithfulness to you. But whether you miss it or not, He will be faithful. He will be faithful. So you can reject it, you can miss it, or you can embrace it. You know, if you know Christ today, continue to walk in the joy of knowing Christ. Continue to walk in understanding that it was Christ's blood that purchased a place in heaven for you. It was Christ's blood that opened up the covenant that gave you not just an eternal security, but a new life now. Enjoy that every day. Let that give you the strength in the hard times. Let that give you the peace and the hope and the joy in the difficult moments. Embrace it. And if you don't know Christ, this is a big embracing. It's like, I have never asked Christ to be my Savior. I've been trusting religion. I've been going to church. I've been doing these, these rituals. But I've never entered into a covenant relationship with God. That's what God's inviting you into. And so whether you're online or whether you're in this room, you can have a moment right now where you say, God, I'm in. <laughs> I've, I've heard it. I, I have a lot to learn, but I'm in. And we call it the ABCs of believing. You can just say, I admit that I'm a sinner. Because you've got to start there with the humility that we're sinful. And then you've got to believe. A, admit, B, believe. Admit that I'm a sinner. Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and rose from the grave, conquering death, conquering sin. And then C, you commit. You make a covenant. You commit to follow Jesus all the days of your life. If you've never done that, you can just, that's a prayer you can pray. God, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus, dying on the cross for my sins. I commit my life to following you. And if you want to have a conversation about that, or if you make that decision today, we want to help you take your next steps. And so there's a couple options for you. One, if you've got a strong Christian friend that you've been talking to about this, tell them you want to receive Christ or that you want to know more about their relationship with Christ. If you're here in this room, there's going to be some of us in the foyer that would love to carry on this conversation with you and say, how can we help you know more about Christ or respond to you giving your life to Christ? We also have an online mechanism that's so simple and easy, especially if you're online right now. Get out your phone type the word connect and send it to our CVC response number, uh, 440-276-5575. And we have some friends on the other end that will say, how can we help? What questions do you have? How can we help follow up with what God's doing in your life? And you can do that, and we'd love to follow up with you. And so you can, you can reject it, you can miss it, or you can embrace it. And I just want to take a couple minutes to share one of many stories of what it looks like when someone comes out of a background comes out of a moment where they're, they're missing it and embraces what it means to have a relationship with Christ. This is Cisco's story. My family's from Cambodia. They were refugees from the uh, Khmer Rouge regime, which is uh, like a big communist party. They came over as, uh, as a sponsorship from a church. They believe it's a Catholic church. And they, once they came here, I don't think they have any other connections to them. And then kind of, straight their own way towards the Buddhist religion. My whole life has been rooted around the Buddhist values. So like in high school, my best friend, he invited me to youth group and that was kind of my introduction to Christianity. I never really um, truly grasped the whole relationship with Jesus or God or anything like that, but it was more like a social event for me to, to kind of fit in. Uh, during my time home, I started going to community college and slowly found myself kind of like going out and partying and drinking a little more until one night I got into a car accident and for, well, I can say this now, by the grace of God, I wasn't hurt 
by any means. My car was just totaled. I went home that night, the officer dropped me off, and from there I just thought to myself, I'm like, what am I doing with my life? I, there's, I don't have anything to kind of live for, but at the same time I did. A few months later, the next month, uh, I met my future wife and Megan, and then she asked me, it's like, would you, would you want to go to church CBC 707? I said, you know, I'll do that. And then we started going to 77 for a year, year and a half, and then it wasn't until a clarity retreat, because at that point I knew that Jesus was there for me and God is the father figure that I needed in my life to kind of uh, model after and kind of strive towards to learn, to learn more about how to live to be a man. God, God was not only just the father figure, but he sent his son to lead this perfect life for me also was punished for my sins, all sins, current, past, future. I want to be baptized out of obedience to Christ. Just because you don't get baptized, you're not a Christian. But at the same time, you get baptized so everybody knows that you are a Christian and that your, your sins have been washed away and you're alive in Christ and you want to live new for Him. One of the biggest reasons for me too was to get baptized was to be not only known I'm a Christian, but also be accountable by the church body for any actions that I might do that could be offensive to God. I want to be able to, to kind of um, be put out there that I can, if somebody has a question or if I can be loving towards somebody, I can be that for them. I never get tired of hearing just those stories of new life in Christ. And it's so cool because we're looking at an ancient story where God uses relationship and God uses circumstances and still reaches through them to pull people to himself and restore people. And we just saw a story just now of a, of a man who came from a different faith background that God used friendship and God used circumstances to draw him to himself. And God's doing that every day. He's done that in our lives. He's trying to do that in some of your lives if you're paying attention. Which, by the way, on that note with the baptisms, if, if you're a follower of Christ and you've never been baptized, like Jesus commanded us to be baptized. It's kind of our wedding ring of our faith that we proudly demonstrate that we love Christ and we believe in Christ. And so if you've never been baptized, uh, we've got one coming up in a few weeks at Wallace Lake. And so you can go online to our website and follow the link to uh, find out more about that baptism and, and go public with joyfully of your new life in Christ. And also just whenever I hear these stories, it's just a reminder that that's a family celebration for us. Like we hear these stories because you pray because you invest your time, you give, um, you, you have a heart for people far from God to come to Christ. And so uh, we celebrate as a family uh, your faithfulness that God is using. And so as we look at all this, um, when it comes to this covenantal relationship that God offers that we're seeing even through the book of Ruth, you can reject it, you can miss it, you can embrace it, and we need to share it. There's people all over that are far from God that need to hear about this love that God has for them despite whatever they're going through. And it's really interesting because if you look at this moment with Naomi, Naomi's not exactly crushing it right here, right? She's bitter. Um, she's obviously done enough and, and God has shown his faithfulness through her to Ruth that she's, she's intrigued and she wants to be part of this. But Naomi's not exactly in a place where she's painting an accurate picture of God. And yet God still uses her anyways. And when we start to think about sharing our faith, it's so easy to feel disqualified, unworthy. We, we think about the flaws in our lives and, and, and ways we've let God down or people down. Look, we've got to get over that. 
God's going to use you, flaws and all, because God's not flawed. We're not trying to connect people to unflawed people. We're trying to connect people to an unflawed God. <laughs> and so God uses flawed people to do so. So you just have to step out and faith and trust that God's going to use you. A couple uh, action steps on that. We started at the beginning of 2020, and it kind of got you know, disrupted a little bit because of that year. But uh, we started something called Who's Your One? And we're surrounded by people who are far from God, but we're saying, look, would you just pray and ask God to show you one specific person that he has uh, put a, a weight on your heart for? And would you just pray for them? And would you love on them and serve them and invest in them and with the hopes that they'll come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? And so if you have not really been active with that who's your one, uh, renew that today and start to pray for that person, seek that person, invest in that person, and uh, trust that God's going to do a work in their life and he's going to use you. Uh, part of that, connecting with them, is inviting them into your home, into your life, into relationship, into Christian community, and to this gathering. And so whenever you have a friend here that's far from God and they join you here to just kind of explore uh, what you believe and what we believe, if they're open to going with you to lunch afterwards, uh, something we're going to have for the next few months is just a card here. We've partnered with a local restaurant, uh, Pizzerina Serino's, where you can go and get a pretty good-sized discount off your meal and just have a conversation. And there's a QR code on the back that you can scan. It gives you three, four questions. They're just good to talk about the service and, and spiritual conversation. And so if, that, you know, if you have a person here that is far from God and, and uh, you want to follow up with that, just sign one of these out at the uh, front information desk and you can utilize that as a tool to just continue to foster relationship with people. So you can reject it, you can miss it, you can embrace it, or you can share it. But no matter what, we have to do something with what God has shown us with his covenant love. I feel like the best way that we can close out this time is to uh, enter into and celebrate that new covenant that we have in Christ and go back to that moment where Jesus was telling his disciples about what the bread and the cup meant. And so uh, if you're online uh, and, and you're, you're not ready, grab something really fast that might work for you. Uh, those of you that came in, hopefully you grabbed one of these on the way in. It's a communion cup. It's all sealed, so I'm not touching the same stuff. But just a reminder that as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, this is just for believers in Christ. So if you're not a follower of Christ yet, pressure's off. Feel no pressure to participate. Nobody's going to be looking like, oh, they're not drinking the cup, you know. Um, it's not authentic for you. So just walk your spiritual journey out. And our hope is that one day we can share this family meal with you. And so for now... Um, those of you online, those of you here that are believers in Christ, let's take this little piece of bread. As you hold it, remember those words of Christ, that this is his body given for us. And so we get the imagery of Jesus hanging on the cross, allowing his body to be abused so that we could have forever covenant with him. Take and eat. And this little cup you hold represents the big cup <laughs> that held the blood of Christ. It has the power to wash away our sins. It was the blood that led to the new covenant that gives us forgiveness, that gives us relationship, restores us back to God. And so we remember Christ and take and share together, my brothers and sisters. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your unfailing love. I'm just stunned that your covenant love will be faithful even when we're not. That even when we cheat on you, run from you, are angry with you, you hold fast to your mercy, you hold fast to your kindness, you hold fast to your love for us. God, that's stunning. We don't deserve it. So thank you for that. Father, I pray that today for my brothers and sisters in Christ, our understanding of your covenant, understanding of your hesed is refreshed and renewed and will give us strength and hope and peace and courage to share with others. And for those who don't know you, Father, that today would be the day they take their step toward believing in Christ. And for those who are struggling in between, would you renew their trust, renew their hope, point them back to you. God, thank you for the covenant you've offered us in Christ. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name, we all sit together. Thanks for listening, friends. If you want to talk about anything that you've heard today, don't hesitate to reach out. You can find contact information and current teaching series on our website at www.cvconline.org.